0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a
2: chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs,
0: now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner.
1: Welcome to the science of success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. This episode, we explore how to battle depression and anxiety and break out of a vicious downward spiral by literally changing the chemistry of your brain by using simple and straightforward tactics that can have huge changes on your brain chemistry with neuroscientist, Dr. Alex Korb. Because the science of success continues to grow rapidly with now more than 400,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries hitting the front page in new and noteworthy and much more. I want to offer something special to my listeners. I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. It might be you. All you have to do to enter to win is to text the word smarter that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's smarter to 44222. And if you're international and want to be entered to win, all you have to do is go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and join our mailing list. Lastly, if you want to get 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave us a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. In our last episode, we explored the psychology behind making better decisions, examined the interconnectedness of many different forms of knowledge, and discussed a number of key concepts to help you better understand the mathematics of misjudgment with Michael J. Malbison. If you want to dramatically improve your decision making and get some easy steps to do it right away, I highly recommend listening to that episode. Today, we've got another awesome guest on the show, Dr. Alex Korb. Alex is a neuroscientist at UCLA and the author of The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. He's also the author of Prefrontal Nudity, a blog on psychology today. Alex, welcome to The Science of Success.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, we're super excited to have you on. Um, To kind of kick things off, tell us a little bit about your background and how specifically you got kind of fascinated with people who struggle with depression and anxiety?
2: Well, uh, I've always been interested in neuroscience. I majored in neuroscience at Brown as an undergrad, and perhaps that originally came from my own examination of myself wondering why I was very emotional sometimes or why I could be productive at some times and found it very difficult to get things done at other times, and that probably drove my initial interest in neuroscience. And then I started working at UCLA at the Brain Mapping Center and saw a lot of the great work they were doing there. And that really expanded my interest in neuroscience. And at the same time, I was coaching the UCLA women's ultimate frisbee team just on the side. And I really enjoyed that, trying to figure out how to motivate people and help them unlock their peak potential. And unfortunately, one of the girls that I coached suffered from major depression and had been depressed for, for years ever since she was in middle school, I think. Uh, she was a freshman at the time. And though she went through a lot of attempts to get better, she was uh, in therapy, she was on medication, she was getting the best treatment. After uh, At the beginning of her sophomore year, she ended up committing suicide. And it was ex- extremely tragic, but that that really led me to try and want to understand what exactly is happening in the brain in someone with depression that could lead them down that path, and so I I decided to pursue a degree in neuroscience, get my PhD at UCLA, and try to figure out what's happening in the brain and depression and what we can do about it.
1: Wow, that's uh that definitely hits home. So one of the One of the things that you talk about and one of the kind of key components of upward spiral is the idea that somebody with depression or somebody with anxiety can literally remap and sort of change the neurochemistry of their brain. Mm -hmm. And and one of the underpinnings of that is kind of the idea of neuroplasticity. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, your brain is constantly being reshaped by the actions that you take and the environment around you and the degree to which it's being reshaped varies from time to time as as you're growing up it's very what we would call plastic meaning plastic in the sense that something that is easily shaped or molded and that process continues as you get older although a lot of aspects settle and harden and become more rigid that's why you say you can't teach an old dog new tricks but it turns out the brain is continuing to grow and be reshaped throughout your life so through through key changes or even unintentional changes in the activities that you do or the interactions that you have or the environment that surrounds you can cause changes in in the regions and the chemicals that contribute to either happiness or depression.
1: So can you describe how someone can sort of get stuck in a, a loop of anxiety or depression?
2: Yeah, well it can happen in a bunch of different ways. Like asking that question is, is similar to saying, how do you, traffic jams start anxiety and depression Happen in the brain because the brain is a complex, dynamic system, like traffic flowing down uh, down a busy set of freeways. Now, that analogy I like to use because there's no one cause for depression. There are many causes that can interact with each other, and that also exposes that there's no really one big solution though oftentimes we would like there to be, there are often just many small solutions. So if all you know that someone is depressed, that doesn't necessarily tell you how they got there or what the path forward is. Just as if you know that there is a traffic jam, that doesn't tell you how to solve the traffic jam. Because one traffic jam could be caused primarily by weather, whereas another traffic jam could be caused primarily by an accident. So we know the key thing is to keep in mind is, is what are the forces that are shaping this traffic jam, this pattern of cars being stuck in this certain way, and what are the different ways to influence uh, the system and get it out of there? Because in depression or anxiety, it's the, this dynamic system of the brain is stuck in this sort of particular pattern of activity and reactivity that it can't quite get out of. And the, there's a the whole bunch of different reasons for why it could get stuck. And there's a whole bunch of small little life changes or uh, medical approaches that we can enact in order to break up that pattern and get people better.
1: And in the book, you use this uh, amazing analogy, which is kind of like essentially describing how a microphone can get caught with feedback and it just gets louder and louder and louder. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that idea?
2: Yeah. Well, when I was talking about the brain getting stuck in this pattern of activity and reactivity, that's sort of abstract. And sometimes the traffic analogy works well with people, particularly if they live in places like L.A. where they have a lot of experience with things like that, but the microphone and speaker analogy is good because it, it simplifies it to one simple circuit. So your brain is composed of dozens and more of, of circuits that control each aspect of your life. You have a a circuit that's devoted to decision-making and, and planning and habits and every other aspect of your life, hundreds of different circuits. And they're often overlapping now, if you look at any individual circuit, that's sort of like a microphone and a speaker that are connected to each other because circuits in the brain are dynamic and they have, they have feedback with each other. And we can look at a microphone and a speaker and say, oh, those are each different independent components. But when you put them and connect them together, they create this feedback circuit. And if the microphone is oriented in just a particular way, or the speaker is turned up a little too loudly, then just even a soft whisper or a slight tap of the microphone could create this, this screeching feedback. And that's important to understand because a lot of times when people when people find out I study depression, they ask me, oh, what you know, so what's wrong with the brain and depression? Or they're depressed and they ask me, What's wrong with my brain? You know, they want to know what's wrong. And I don't think that's quite the right way to think about it. Because if you look at the analogy of the microphone and a speaker, yes, you're getting this output, this screeching feedback that's, that's terrible and undesirable. And no one wanted that intentionally. But there's nothing wrong with the microphone. There's nothing wrong with the speaker. Both are working exactly as they're supposed to. It's just in the dynamic interaction of the elements of that circuit that it gets caught in this runway, runway activity. And we might, even though it's a terrible outcome that, that's hard to, hard to bear, the solution could be starting with very small changes of moving, reorienting the microphone just a little bit or turning down the volume just a tad on the speaker and this big problem suddenly disappears.
1: You describe the brain as a complex adaptive system, which basically, you know, one of the concepts you mention in an upward spiral is the idea that the same stimulus can actually have a completely different effect on the brain based on sort of the kind of mental state and the kind of place that you're in. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's... It's related to this notion of you can't step in the same river twice. All of the actions that you take are causing different changes in the brain as you're you're moving forward in your life. it's your brain is constantly shifting and adapting to the previous choices that you made in your current life circumstances. So a good example is is thinking about how. Setbacks or frustrations can affect us differently at different times in our lives for a whole number of reasons. That could be including the environment that surrounds you, or the goals that you're working towards, or the support, the social support that you have. So, for example, if you make a mistake or fail a test in college where you still have a clear path towards graduation or, and you still are living with a bunch of your friends, then maybe that wouldn't have quite the same effect as if you made a big mistake at work when you are in your late 20s and living by yourself. Because how your brain reacts to that failure is different. As your brain chemistry changes with age, It's it can be different based on your social relationships, the environment around you, the different habits that you've continued to develop or strengthen over the time that you've been living. And so just because something wasn't enough to push you into depression early on doesn't mean that it couldn't be the reason Now, or the primary reason, because the reasons are always complex. And similarly, if you are depressed, just because one attempted solution didn't work the first time doesn't mean it won't work at another time. And here's where the analogy to traffic works well. Something that could be used to ease traffic, such as uh, a traffic light or something, might be very effective at sometimes actually slow people down, but it wouldn't be effective at other times during the day when there are too many cars or things like that. I don't know if that made any sense.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. Basically, the idea that, you know, if you're struggling, you know, for example, someone who's struggling now with depression or anxiety, that just because something hasn't worked in the past, it may actually be effective now because your the, the brain is so complex and constantly changing that the stimulus might have a completely different effect you know to to use the traffic analogy basically the same idea is if you take a route at some time in the day it might take you five minutes to get somewhere and if you take it at the wrong time of day it might take you half an hour
2: yes that's that's definitely true and the the thing that's that's different from traffic which makes it even more dynamic is the fact that your own choices and actions change the actual activity in those brain circuits. So just because something didn't work the first time, well, when you do it the second time, you've, you, the, the actions that you made the first time already had an effect on the brain so that the context in which you were attempting it the second time is a totally different context where those brain circuits are now being activated for the second time instead of for the first time. And so that might be enough to, to be the difference.
1: So for listeners who might not kind of grasp the difference, can you explain sort of the difference between depression and anxiety?
2: Yeah, well, depression and anxiety are very related in terms of their neurocircuitry. But they they can have very different effects and appear very differently and they're very different syndromes, even though they oftentimes co-occur together. What's a more common question I think is what people wonder what the difference is between depression and just general sadness or what the difference is between anxiety and just normal worrying. And it's not just a matter of degree because I think a lot of times people think of depression as just being really sad all the time or anxiety as just worrying a lot but they both involve a lot more symptoms than that and I I really focus on depression a lot and it's I think it's even more complex than most people grasp and so that's why I like to explain things from that perspective for example A lot of times people with depression don't necessarily feel sad all the time. They can often have an emptiness where emotion should be. They feel like nothing is enjoyable. They don't have any energy. They can have trouble sleeping. Often anxiety is a symptom. Things feel like they lack meaning. And oftentimes life appears like it's not worth living. And it's very difficult to understand from the outside because you could look at someone's life and think, oh, they have so much going on in their life. Why, what, do, what do they have to, to be depressed about? But really, the, the problem with depression is that it robs the brain or robs the person of their ability to connect or feel a close connection with the people around them or to enjoy the things that maybe they used to enjoy. And this symptom of anxiety, which is often included in depression, is, is a, a terrible disorder, even when it's experienced on its own, because it's, it's a lot more than just simple worrying. In fact, worrying and anxiety, they're, they're sort of related concepts, but it, worry is thinking about problems, whereas anxiety is much more feeling them. Anxiety is like a trigger of the brain's fear response. And it includes a lot of physical symptoms that people don't quite realize. For example, a racing heart or a queasy stomach or tense muscles. A lot of times people have these feelings of anxiety, but they're not even consciously aware that that's what they're feeling.
1: One of the things you talk about related to that is kind of the idea that sometimes you can be worried about something or a number of things, but that that worry is sort of a surface level symptom of a much deeper anxiety that may be about something completely different. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that's something that, you know, personally I've, I've found or, you know, when I'm, when I'm feeling really stressed out, when I'm feeling really worried, I'll often kind of pull back and ask myself, you know, what's really stressing me out? What's really the cause of this anxiety? And sometimes you got to go to, I mean, some very kind of core, you know, fundamental things in your life that are happening as opposed to sort of that surface level thing that it seems like, Oh, I'm stressed out about X when really it's something much deeper that maybe happened even months ago or, you know, that you have never really dealt with.
2: Right. Yeah. And I actually experienced this early on in my life and perhaps it's, it's useful that my, my mom is a psychiatrist. So she sort of pointed these things out, not in any mean way, but, uh, I realized that I had a lot of stomach aches as a kid, particularly when I was in line at a amusement park for like a scary roller coaster. And my older brother, you're scared of going on this roller coaster. I'm like, no, I'm not scared. I was like, I have a stomach ache. I have to go to the bathroom. Like I don't see, like I didn't see a connection between the two. And at another point um, when I was learning long division, I just, I just started crying And because I couldn't get it and I just didn't understand why, uh, why I couldn't get it. And my mom asked if, if I was feeling overwhelmed and it was a, it was a strange situation because it didn't make sense to me why I was crying because I wasn't sad about anything. (laughs) I just couldn't get this, uh, this mathematical concept. And usually math had been quite easy for me. But in, when she asked if I was feeling frustrated or overwhelmed, it took her asking that to have me actually look inside myself and ask myself, oh, how am I feeling? And that's a very important skill. And I started to realize like, oh, like, yes, because I can't quite grasp this concept, that's what's making me upset. It's not this math problem per se, it's this larger Problem. I, know I didn't fully realize that at the time, but it—it it wasn't that particular math problem that was making me upset. It was the larger concept of feeling competent and being able to. Um, I was taking a more advanced math class and feeling like I was able to, to succeed at it. And you know, that's that's an example from childhood. But we have these things going on all the time. For example, you might be worrying about one aspect of a party i i use this example in my book of for example when you go through a wedding sometimes you obsess over the the invitations and all these different different aspects of the wedding but what you're really worried at heart is the the social approval of your friends and uh they're they're about much deeper issues or any worries that you express about the wedding ceremony per se may be reflections of a deeper anxiety that you have about the relationship with the person you're getting married. So just, just because we, our mind focuses on one aspect of and thinking, Oh, this is the problem. Oftentimes that is because dealing with the deeper problem or acknowledging the deeper problem is dif- is more difficult and so we prefer to to focus on the these superficial aspects that are actually stand-ins for the deeper problem
1: and that's something that really hit hit home for me you know uh, in the last 6 months or so i actually lost both of my grand both of my remaining grandparents and i, it. I well, it's it's okay but you know i found myself struggling and experiencing the huge amounts of anxiety with things that were things that were totally normal, totally kind of not an issue for me at all before that. And, and it really took me a little while to kind of figure out like, Hey, this is something maybe I haven't really dealt with or that I need to really think about and kind of go back and, and, you know, drill down a little bit more on. And so that really resonated and hit home with me deeply and was one of the kind of most poignant parts of upward spiral.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I I think a lot of times when certain events happen like that, and then we find ourselves at at work, and we're trying to to finish a report that we've done quarterly for the last five years, and just can't quite, you know, seem to finish it, or having a lot more difficulty, we realize, oh, because, you know, once I finish this, then I'll have to deal with uh, uh, whether I'm going to get that promotion. And if my Am I really at a job that I uh, value because my my grandparents worked at the same job that they valued for all this time? And we we don't like dealing with thinking about those deeper issues. But when we ignoring them doesn't necessarily make them go away. It just means that we can't appropriately deal with them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's like uh, burying your head in the sand isn't going to fix the problem. Right, And uh, we actually have a whole a uh, previous episode we did about kind of accepting reality and sort of, you know, really kind of being present and mindful and, and accepting the way that things are. And mm-hmm. so, for, you know, for listeners who might want to be struggling with that, that'd be a good episode to go back and potentially check out.
2: Yeah. And what, what's interesting is that the very act of introspection of just asking yourself how you feel and trying to figure out what it is that's really bothering you, that can actually help reduce its emotional impact. There's a great study, done, a neuroimaging study done on people where they were shown emotional pictures. And your brain has an automatic emotional response when it sees different emotional pictures. But if they ask the people, name the emotion that you're seeing or name the emotion that you're feeling, that simple act of introspection actually decreases the brain's emotional response.
1: That's fascinating. And I think that's a great segue into, you know, some of the strategies for kind of breaking out of that cycle. You know, for somebody that is sort of trapped in a situation of depression or anxiety and they feel like there's no way out, what are some of the things that you would recommend? I know there's obviously a broad list that you talk about in upward spiral, but maybe as an initial starting point or an initial first step to sort of make the first shift or kind of get that upward spiral started to where they can kind of slowly pull themselves out of it.
2: Well, the, one of the first things is to recognize that there's nothing quote unquote wrong with you. A lot of times when people feel stuck In depression or anxiety, they spend all this mental effort chastising themselves for that there's or that they feel like they can't address it because there's something wrong with them or wrong with their brain. And it's really just simply recognizing that now you have different regions of your brain that are supposed to feel anxious or they're supposed to make you question your decisions and be indecisive. Those regions are working exactly as they're supposed to, just as with the microphone and the speaker analogy. Or there are regions of their brain that are supposed to notice your mistakes. And we just need to tweak the activity in those regions a little bit or change your environment a little bit to to tone it down. But there's nothing inherently wrong with, with having any of those traits on an individual level or there's nothing wrong with your brain. And the second thing to realize is that through intentional action, through making small life changes in the actions you take, or the interactions you have, or the environment around you, you can actually start to shape and change the activity and chemistry in the brain, in the very brain regions that are contributing to you being stuck and the number of of life changes that you can make fall into a whole bunch of different categories and I'm happy to expand on any of them, but they include small things like just exercising more, going for a, a little walk outside because not only does the exercise help, the sunlight absorbed through your skin has benefits, the sunlight absorbed through your eyes has even has different benefits on a different pathway, changing some of your habits around sleep can help make it even more restful, Uh, reaching out to people close to you, or even talking to strangers, or getting a massage. These are all small little life changes that have measurable effects in the brain, and they can start to change the dynamics, i.e. turn down the volume on that speaker of that particular circuit a little bit, and push you
0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
1: So let's drill down a little bit. You know, one of the one of the first things you recommend is exercise. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of share with the listeners how exercise can uh, both change your neurochemistry and produce more, uh, you know, BDNF. I forget what that stands for, but I'm sure you know. And and, and
2: Neurotrophic factor.
1: Exactly. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of drill into how exercise can literally change the chemistry of your brain to wire you to be happier.
2: Yeah, well, I'll start with BDNF since you brought it up. That is a chemical... That is sort of like steroids are for your muscles. It helps strengthen and grow new neurons. And in a particularly vulnerable part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is important in forming new memories, and it's also part of the emotional circuitry of the brain, if you have depression, that can actually start to decrease cell production and, and kill neurons in the hippocampus. But if you take antidepressant medications, that can increase this chemical BDNF, which helps strengthen neurons, keeps them from dying, and grows new neurons. And it turns out that exercise has a lot of the same effects as antidepressant medications, specifically on BDNF, because it can actually start to grow new neurons in this key emotional circuit
1: and some of the other neurochemicals that it helps produce are mm-hmm. things like norepinephrine, endorphins, etc. Talk a little bit about why those are important and how those can kind of be mutually reinforcing in terms of improving your brain strength.
2: Yeah. So the the three main neurotransmitter systems targeted by antidepressant medications are serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. And exercise can modulate the activity in all three of those neurotransmitter systems. It can increase the production of serotonin, which helps improve willpower and managing your emotions and connecting your, your present actions to future goals and rewards. Norep- the norepinephrine system can help manage stress and improve focus. And the dopamine system helps with habits and overriding bad habits and maintaining uh, good habits. And it also is important in a certain spark of joy in life, the enjoyment that you get from eating a chocolate bar or giving someone uh, a hug. Well, the hug has a lot of other neurochemical effects as well, but uh, anything, a lot of Anything that's naturally pleasing redu- uh, releases dopamine in the brain, which is what makes it rewarding, such as eating or sex or things like that. And exercise can modulate the dopamine system as well. In, in fact, a great example of that was they took a study of smokers. And one of the reasons why smoking is so addicting is because it activates that dopamine system. But They took people who were smokers. They didn't let them smoke for a day, so they're really on edge, really wanted that cigarette. And one group exercised on a stationary bike for just 10 minutes, and then they scanned their brain and see how their brains responded to, to pictures of cigarettes. And the people who hadn't exercised had a much bigger drive in their brain for wanting that cigarette. They had a much bigger dopamine response. Whereas the people who had just exercised, that exercise had provided uh, some more dopamine It modulated the dopamine response so that they didn't crave the cigarettes quite as much.
1: So just 10 minutes of stationary bike was able to kind of create some of those changes. So when you talk about exercise, it's not necessarily going out and running four or five miles. This is something that, you know, can be relatively easy to implement in your life.
2: Yeah, well, as I I say to a lot of people, the the exercise that you do is infinitely more valuable to you than the exercise that you don't do. And it doesn't always take a lot because it's really compared to well what were you doing in the first place? If if you're feeling depressed and you're just lying on the couch all day and someone says, okay, we'll run a 5K. That's not really going to seem possible. And if that means, well, then you're not going to do anything, then you're not going to be able to start to turn things around. So it really depends on where you are. And if if you're just sitting around not doing anything, well, just standing up and walking outside or walking around the block, that's going to put you off in a better position than doing nothing at all. And that small amount of exercise will start to put your brain in a better position to make better choices or to – makes it easier to, to exercise more. And that's why I call my book The Upward Spiral because these small little life changers, these small little actions cause changes in the brain which make further positive life changes more possible.
1: That's great. And and one of the other topics that you talk a lot about is the idea of making decisions and how making decisions can create sort of some other upward spirals and change your neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. I love the example that you used of... It's more about making a good decision than making the best decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something that I've insistently been trying to teach my wife. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm sure she doesn't want to hear that on the podcast. But can you –
2: Well, you should try writing a book about neuroscience and then trying to teach your wife every chapter of it. That doesn't go over as well either.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, a lot of struggles there.
2: I say you should just read chapter seven again.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, can you talk a little bit about kind of how decision making can change neurochemistry and specifically why it's it's important to sort of settle for a good decision, quote unquote?
2: Yeah, well, that has a lot of different aspects to it. One, this notion of trying to pick the best decision causes problems because oftentimes there isn't a best decision or you certainly don't have enough information given where you are right now to be able to decide what that best decision is. And so we can often feel paralyzed because we don't actually move forward in any direction. And when you're given, when you're not actually moving in a direction, any Moving in any direction feels equally plausible and we can just sit there and do nothing and then gain no more information and therefore we're not accomplishing anything. Whereas if you just start to move in a particular direction, uh, for example, um, there's a study on people who couldn't decide what job they wanted, what career path they wanted to take. And that can feel very overwhelming. If they just started to research any job, that reduced their anxiety and made it easier for them to move forward. And it didn't have to be the job that they ended up wanting to take. They just had to start pick something to start reading about. And then that would give them more guidance and more information because now they could say either, oh, yes, from learning about it, I think that's a better decision. So I'm going to keep moving in that direction or from learning about it, I realize oh, that's the wrong way. I'm going to do something else, but moving in one direction, realizing it's the wrong thing and coming back to where you started, that is much better for you than sitting there and doing nothing at all. Uh, The, the other aspect uh, of your question that's important for people to realize is that having a goal and making one small step or intention towards that goal actually changes the way your brain perceives the world and is, is going to start creating opportunities for your brain to just notice solutions all on its own. And that can maybe sound kind of abstract, but the, think of the, the feature on, on your camera that maybe highlights faces. When you hold it up to a group of people, it knows that you're trying probably to take picture of faces. So it puts a little box around the faces and it focuses on them. And your brain has that same capability to focus on the, the parts of your environment or the parts of your life that are actually important to you and ignore all the rest of the irrelevant details. But in order for your brain to rely on your brain's automatic processing to do that, You just have to create an intention or a goal and take one little step in that direction. And then that you'll start to get the benefits of that brain circuitry. So the study that's related to that, that's really interesting, I think, is they had they asked a group of people to get ready to either point or grab a certain figure they're going to show them and then when they flashed an image up on the screen of things that were either easier to point to or to grab the activity in their visual cortex was actually different based on what their intended action was now the visual cortex that's a very like low level thing that's the kind of thing that you would think oh it should just automatically process the image of what's whatever is coming in but based on your intention and and the goals that these people were setting out, the region of the brain that controlled the goals was actually increasing the gain sort of in the visual cortex to look for things that were relevant to the goal that they were doing. So once you start having this idea, once you, once you commit to a particular goal or moving down a certain path and having a, a, a specific intention, then these lower level unconscious parts of your brain will start changing your perception of the world to help accomplishing to make accomplishing that goal easier
1: so one of the things you mentioned is is taking that small step and you talk about a little bit in the book the idea that uh, following through is a critical component and actually has a different impact on your neurochemistry than just sort of deciding that you're going to do something
2: Mm -hmm. yeah well Actions speak louder than words. Your brain knows and interprets your goals based on your thoughts, but also on your actions. I I experienced this myself the first time I signed up for online dating when I was in my early twenties. I felt like I don't have uh, there's there's no one to meet. I, I can't find get a date with anyone, so I signed up for online dating. And I immediately started going on more dates. But the interesting thing was that the dates that I was going on wasn't necessarily through the online dating, but through the act of signing up for the website and paying my money, I sent a signal to myself saying that, yes, this is something I'm actually interested in. And that starts to change your perception of the world and awareness and the parts of your your brain that, that, that search sort, sort of sees opportunities in everyday situations. Well, on the bus, I would see, uh, make smile with the, the girl sitting next to me and then I'd strike up a conversation. And by, by taking a certain action down the path and committing myself at least somewhat down this path of, Oh yes, I'm actually going to try and meet someone. Uh, I was starting to see possibilities in, everyday life. And the actual truth is that those possibilities had already been there. But since I hadn't made a concerted action and to, to sh- tell myself that, yes, this is I want to try and meet someone, that this is something that's important to me, then I'd been I'd been missing all of the signs that were around me all along.
1: And I think that's so important. It's one of the reasons that, you know, visualization is such a powerful tool as
2: well. Yeah. And the problem is, it can sound very hokey. I think a lot of that sounds like the secret, like you send your thoughts out into the universe, and you change what comes back. But your, your prefrontal cortex is responsible for goal-directed actions. And another deeper region, the anterior cingulate cortex, sits sort of the intersection between your prefrontal cortex and your emotional brain regions. And one of its jobs is to notice goal-relevant stimuli in the world. So if you don't have a particular goal, your brain has to spend most of its time ignoring most of the stimuli around the world because there's a million more things than you can ever consciously process. But if you have a particular goal then those two brain regions are communicating with each other so that they know, okay, what's, what are the kinds of things I should be looking for so that when something happens in the world that is, that is close to something that, that could benefit you, then, boom, the intersingulate cingulate fires and brings your attention to it and say, oh, this is important. We should pay attention to this. And by, by creating those goals and intentions – and moving down that path, in a particular path, we're giving our brain the opportunity to be able to focus on these these parts of the the world that are important to us. We can't necessarily change the world uh, per se, but we can start to change our perception of it, and that's just as important. Like you can think of the the police chief; he can give orders to the to the lower level officers on patrol, like ignore drug dealers and start focusing on speeding tickets. And boom, the number of speeding tickets is gonna increase. There were just as many people speeding before, but the police department wasn't paying as much attention to them. And that's the way a lot of these perceptual systems in the brain work. Your prefrontal cortex is that police chief. It can give the orders to the lower level lower level officers to say, okay, this is the, the things that we want to pay attention to and go out there and look for them.
1: So everybody who's listening out here, you heard it from the neuroscientist, the, what you perceive in reality can change based on what you tell yourself and how, and what in the beliefs that you put into your mind. Right. And that's actually something we did a previous episode on as well about the reality of perception and how literally the world and your world can shift, you know, it's kind of the same idea that you like you said, it sort of sounds like the secret, but the reality is actually rooted in neuroscience. And it's rooted in the way that your brain is structured.
2: Yeah. And I think, though, take starting to take action, even if the small action shows that you are actually committed to that idea as real, rather than just you, you can't completely change your perception of the world simply by thinking about it. But by taking action as if this thing were true, or to show yourself that this is the goal that you are pursuing, then that's sending feedback to your brain that, oh, yes, actually, I do believe this is true. And that's going to start to have a bigger effect. Because your thoughts are one thing, and your actions are another thing. And those ideally should be able to support each other. But if you're trying to have one thought but your actions don't reflect the thought that you're having, then they're gonna compete with each other and you're not necessarily gonna get the same benefit. To continue, very simple actions in, in your body and your posture can have effects on your, your feelings and your thoughts. You can tell yourself that you're happy and everything is fine. But if you have an anxious facial expression and a sad, withdrawn posture, then and you're sitting on your couch not doing anything, then your brain isn't really gonna fully believe those thoughts. Whereas if you tell yourself that you're, everything is fine and you sit up straight and relax your face, and you put on a little hint of a smile, take a deep breath, and go outside, well then those actions Are feeding into those thoughts, and those are going to support each other and actually start to make you believe yourself.
1: I think that's an incredible piece of advice and wisdom, and, and something that everybody listening should really take to heart. Changing gears slightly, and something that I'm incredibly passionate about, something that I frequently advocate, is the power of gratitude. I know that's something that you talk about in the book. Can you expand on that a little bit and maybe share some of the research behind why gratitude is so powerful?
2: Yeah, gratitude can actually help improve the quality of your sleep, for example. Uh, And that's a big one because I have a whole chapter in my book on sleep and how important it is. And so many people say to me, yeah, yeah, I know I should get more sleep. Uh, I don't have time for that. Like, Give me something else that I can do that doesn't take up more time. And the important thing to understand there is if you just take a couple minutes before you go to sleep and just write a journal of of the things that you are happy for that day or maybe the things that you're excited for tomorrow, the things in your life that you're grateful for, it actually improves the quality of your sleep and makes it more restful, even if you can't necessarily get more sleep. And focusing on the positive parts of your life can actually, and particularly happy memories, can actually increase the production of serotonin in key regions of the brain, such as the anterior cingulate cortex that I mentioned before, which sits at the intersection of the sort of rational and emotional brain. And serotonin, as I said before, is one of the key systems targeted by antidepressant medications. So thinking happy memories can actually boost that system. And there are other studies. Uh, There was one study that looked at people who uh, underwent psychotherapy. If prior to their psychotherapy, they wrote a thank you letter to someone they'd been meaning to thank but hadn't got around to yet, then the therapy was actually more effective. And there were regions of the brain that had, uh, including this anterior cingulate cortex, that had changes many weeks later even from this small act of gratitude
1: that's amazing and and i know there's a few other studies too that just mm-hmm. demonstrate the incredible power of gratitude
2: it and and part of it is because it your brain only has a limited ability to focus on things there's the world is so complex that you have to filter out 99% of the things that are are floating around you or bombarding you every day. An intentional act of gratitude is important because it, it tells yourself, it, it tells your brain that, yes, I want to focus more on the things that make me happy. Because evolution didn't necessarily, wasn't designed to make you happy. It was, it was designed to make you live and have sex and reproduce. That's what got us here in the first place but now that we're here and we have consciousness most of us realize like oh well i'd actually prefer to be happier so evolution didn't necessarily design your brain to be the happiest it could be but through intentional action you can start to shift your perception towards focusing on more positive aspects and therefore increase your happiness
1: can you elaborate a little bit on the concept of biofeedback, what it is and, and how it's important in combating depression and anxiety?
2: Yeah. Biofeedback is simply the idea that the brain changes its activity based on what the body is doing. So I, I referenced it before. I just didn't use that name. There's, for example, when you are feeling anxious, you you might have fast breathing and tense muscles and a and a racing heart if you can slow down your breathing and stretch out your muscles then your your deep your breathing will not only slow down but the d- deep breathing can actually slow down your heart as well then that will send different signals back to the brain you we often think of emotion as a one-way street like oh i have this anxiety and that's why i'm having all these sensations in my body, such as the the breathing and the muscle tension and so forth. But your brain is constantly monitoring your body for how it should feel. So yes, maybe you felt anxiety, but then that caused these, or you had a, a worried thought or whatever that triggered this anxiety and that caused these bodily symptoms. But now those bodily symptoms are feeding back and making you feel more anxious. And if you can disrupt that feedback cycle by decreasing the the body's anxious response, then you can make yourself feel calmer. Now, it won't necessarily eliminate all of the anxiety, but it'll keep you from making it worse. And that's why deep breathing can be so powerful. If you're feeling depressed and sad, well, if you're having withdrawn posture and and stooped over posture, that can be a feedback signal to your brain saying, oh, yes, I'm feeling sad. Or if you have a, um, a worried facial expression, if you can improve your posture, sit up straight, open your chest to the world, take a deep breath and smile, then that's going to be sending different signals back to the brain where it's going to think, oh, maybe things aren't quite so bad because the body is behaving as if I'm happy.
1: So for listeners out there that might be struggling with depression or anxiety or even maybe listeners who aren't what would be one piece of homework that you would give them?
2: I think one of the simplest things that I recommend is just going for a walk in the morning ideally with a friend Uh, that captures a lot of aspects of the upward spiral including sunlight at the right time and exercise and making a habit and possibly some social inputs as well. And that's just a very small change that most people feel capable of making. Other simple changes include the act of introspection, just momentarily throughout the day, checking in with yourself and noticing how you're feeling. And not necessarily Making a judgment about that, but that is good or bad. But just saying, "Oh, okay, this is uh, this is where I'm at," and that act of introspection can help you feel uh, can help reduce the emotional impact of your emotions. And lastly, I would say be present. Whatever you're doing, just do that at 100%. Pay attention to the things you're doing, and don't pay attention to the things you're not doing. And that, uh, the introspection that I mentioned previously is actually related to that. Because if you're feeling anxious, or if you're feeling sad, that's part of who you are at that moment. And being present includes recognizing, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Okay, I'm going to continue to work on this or focus on that, even though I'm anxious.
1: Where can people find you online for people that want to learn more or do some more research about this?
2: Yeah, I have a website, alexcorbphd.com. I'm including a lot of my blog articles and I offer personal coaching and consultations for people who are interested in, in learning how, more about the brain or how better to apply it to their life.
1: Well, for anybody out there who's listening that, that struggles with depression or anxiety, I highly recommend checking out The Upward Spiral. There's so many different tactics and strategies in the book. We only barely scratch the surface and we could talk for hours and hours about all the different things that you can do that are often very simple, very easy steps to take to kind of break out of that vicious cycle, break out of that downward spiral and you know get into an upward spiral. So Alex, thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. Uh, This has been some great feedback and conversation, and I really appreciate having you on here.
2: Thanks. It was great to be here and hopefully we reached some people that could use it. Thank you so much for listening to the science
1: of success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes. This helps us move up in the rankings so we can reach more people and share our message. Lastly, as a thank you to you for being amazing listeners, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. Lastly, if you have any questions or you want to reach out to me personally, shoot me an email. That's matt, M-A-T-T, at scienceofsuccess.co. That's matt at scienceofsuccess.co. I love hearing from listeners. I love hearing your stories. Please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.